Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome to Squanderlust, a podcast about the emotional side of money, why our actions aren't always as good as our intentions and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Martha Lawton. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Catherine Morgan, financial planner, money coach and host of the Money Panel podcast and author of It's Not About the Money. Before we begin, a quick reminder to check out our website, squanderlustpod.com. As well as show notes, we have listener deals, links to buy books written by our awesome guests, and ways to support the show so we can keep Dave, Alicia, and the rest of the lovely people behind the scenes here at Wardour Studios in coffee and pizza. This is very important. Okay, let's crack on. Welcome, Catherine. Tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the on the show today. It's uh, it's amazing to be here with you. So yeah, my name's Catherine. I am a qualified financial planner and a trauma-informed financial coach. Um, and we're very much on a mission to help reduce financial anxiety and increase financial resilience for a million women all around the world. Um, and that's kind of everything we do is aligned to how can we help more women to have a better relationship with money. That's fantastic. Um, very, very, very much needed. Love that mission of helping a million women. I think that's that's really spectacular. Can you tell us a bit about your background and um, how you got to this, please? Yeah, it's it's been a, I feel like it's almost like the journey never stops. <laughs> <laughs> Relatable. Like even in, like listening to your guys' podcasts, you know, every time I listen to other people's work around the subject of behavioral finance and money mindset, every day I feel like I'm learning more and more about myself. Um, mm. But my background and my journey to where I am today is that I qualified as in the financial services profession when I was 18 to be a financial advisor. And so I spent all of my kind of late teenage years and all of my 20s working in the banking sector and specifically in financial advice. And what I was really curious to was that I knew everything there was to know about budgeting, managing money, investing. Was I doing any of it for myself? No. Like <laughs> I lived a complete um, cycle, ever occurring, recurring cycle of debt and shame. Mm. And it wasn't really until I got into my late 20s and I had two particular life-changing moments that completely transformed my relationship with money and I remember sitting in the bank thinking like how many people feel like this about money how many people feel 
so much guilt and shame with the jargon that's used in financial services with the fact that we weren't taught money growing up we didn't learn it at school and therefore we carried around with us these like bunch of borrowed beliefs that go on to inform how we behave um and so it was really off the back of those two quite significant chapters in my own life that led me to rethink or question really the importance of not just financial education, but also all the work around our behaviours and our belief systems around money. Yeah, that is very relatable. I think if you've been listening to the show, you know that I've also struggled from time to time with that tension between, well, this is my work. I know how to do this intellectually, but then Mm. putting it in practice (laughs) is a different thing. Um. You said that there were two key events that really put you on this different path. Could you tell us a bit more about those events? Yeah, I'll share out of the two. I'll share probably the most significant one, Mm. which was when my second son was born. So going back to the 1st of October 2013, if you can perhaps imagine where you might have been around that time of the year. And my second son was just five weeks old and my eldest son was two and a half. And for those of you who don't have children, um, having a a little baby into the mix of a toddler is Mm. quite fun. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember that particular morning when my son had woken up. He'd had a pretty disturbed night's sleep, didn't want to feed, didn't want to sleep. Um, was just kind of making these weird grunting noises in his sleep and we kind of just thought oh that's quite kind of cute and on the morning that he woke up I got my elder son off to nursery and as the day went by his his kind of condition just rapidly deteriorated and we went from him not wanting to feed to actually a moment when I walked over to the Moses basket in the bay window and he was just lying really still, uh, quite grey and his hands and his feet, although wrapped up in his baby grow, were like ice. And that particular day I had my friend coming over to do these little baby hand casting sessions and I remember when I picked Thomas up and I undid his baby grow and felt his hands and his feet and he just screamed at me like he didn't want to be touched, he didn't want to be picked up. And I remember turning around to my friend and just saying, like, do you mind if you just leave a little bit early? Because I want to get him down to the doctors. And within 20 minutes, she left. I picked up the phone to my friend who's a nurse. And I said, look, am I being like an overreactive mum? And and to put it into context, I nearly lost Thomas when he was born. We were told there was a 50-50 chance he was going to survive through the night. And so I thought maybe I'm just being like super paranoid. And she said, well, have you checked his temperature? And I was like, well... No, because he's got cold hands and cold feet. So I was kind of wrapping him up to keep him warm. And I checked his temperature and his temperature was like 39.9 degrees, which for anyone who does have children will know that anything over like 38 is either get the cow pole out or like something needs to happen. And with that, I literally put him in the car seat. I rang my husband. I drove straight down to A&E. And within 20 minutes, the, the doctors put me on a wheelchair. I had Thomas in my arms and... I'll never forget the moment when they just wheeled us into resuscitation. And I just remember thinking, my gosh, this is quite serious. And all these doctors started swarming around us. And I felt kind of quite reassured that I had experts around me. But they were using medical jargon that I just didn't understand. And there was this one doctor that kept saying this word sepsis. And I remember thinking, 
like, I think I know what that means. I kept going back to this like home and away episode when one of the characters, Shane, I don't know whether you ever watched it, <laughs> Shane and yeah. Angel and Shane died of sepsis. I was like, oh, oh my God. God, like, what is this thing? Like, what's the matter? What can I do to help him? And went into complete solution mode. Three days later, he was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis, which is like the worst form of meningitis. But because we got him in so quickly, he's now a very bright and happy eight-year-old boy. But the consequence for me was that all of this jargon that was being used, when I went back to work a year later, um, I I physically struggled with carrying both my boys. And I had um, a condition where I, it was basically separation around my pelvis and I just couldn't sit down for longer than about 20 minutes. And my boss at work didn't understand it. He just wanted to get me signed off work. I wanted to be in work. And I remember sitting in the office one day and I had this literally light bulb moment of how many people feel like this about money? How many people don't understand the jargon? How many people feel safe and secure when they're talking to a financial expert, but they also feel a lot of judgment, shame, guilt, responsibility, regret, anger, resentment, all of these really powerful emotions. And how often does that actually stop us from feeling deserving of having money and then keeping hold of it? And for me, the consequence was I was diagnosed with PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And I weirdly went in back into a cycle of debt and shame because what was happening for me is that I felt so out of control of what was happening with Thomas even though he survived and is absolutely fine but I felt so out of control that I then got out of control with my finances and so the meaning I was giving to money was that I only it was only possible for me to have money and keep hold of it if I deserved it Mm. and I therefore created this massive attachment to my sense of self and money and it, and it's one of my key teachings now when I work with other women is around separating who we are our sense of self away from money because for me that had such a detrimental impact on how I was treating money and which ultimately was how I was actually treating myself I mean firstly thank you that's an incredibly powerful story so thank you so much for sharing that and but I, I completely relate to what you're saying about the uh, way that how you treat money is how you treat yourself and how, yeah, that the, the over-attachment of who you are to how to your money behavior is, is um, separating those out is so important for trying to become in control of your finances and being able to think clearly about what you do with money instead of reacting and and being emotional in your behavior with your finances it's it's so entirely it can get so entirely entangled um yeah no I I can see that and it's also interesting that you say that that was something that you'd become better at and then the shock and the feelings of being so out of control then led to you falling back in a way onto a behaviour that you'd left behind in part, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think actually what's interesting about what you said there is that a lot of people feel like they have to get in control of money. 
Like I see it on people's websites and things all the time. Like, you know, do you want to be better with money? Do you want to get more in control with money? And for me, the word control is an interesting one, isn't it? Mm. Because, you know, well, what happens when we try and control something? When we can try and control money, it means we're trying to have power over something. And it's quite a kind of coercive relationship with money, which if you flip that over, having control over money is not necessarily a good thing. Like one of the areas that I am qualified in is financial abuse and, you know, having manipulative narcissistic control over somebody's finances can be, you know, extremely detrimental in society. And there's quite a significant increase, particularly in recent, um, the last sort of 18 months of COVID where we've seen this increase in domestic abuse and therefore Mm. financial abuse. But the word control for me is an interesting one because it's not about being in control of money. Mm. It's about trusting ourselves with the relationship that we have with money Mm. rather than trying to control something. Can you see the difference there? Yeah, no, that's a really that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think there's something about rather than trying to control yourself in your behavior with money, You're saying when you are trusting and confident of your own financial behaviours, you can kind of hold that a little bit more lightly and hold yourself a little bit more lightly and a more healthy relationship with money kind of flows out of that. Yeah, I think the the word control, like I want to be in control of money, like having Mm. control over something is is really a smokescreen for wanting to feel safe. Mm. And in order to feel safe, we need to accept that money, you know, will kind of come and go during our lives. And there will be times where money is like freely available and we kind of feel quite abundant around money and then times where it feels much more scarce. And I think the more we try to control something, the more out of control we become. Because many of us are just really fearful of change uh, because change is unfamiliar, right? And the Mm -hmm. brain dislikes Mm -hmm. unfamiliarity because it threatens our natural habit patterns. And so when we think about changing something, whether that's our money mindset or our financial situation or maybe our job or something about our business, it feels really difficult because the brain doesn't like change. It doesn't like, Mm. you know, unfamiliarity. So the the, it, the reason I mention it is that a lot of people think about, well, maybe for 2022, I want to be better with money and I need to maybe budget better or plan better or save more. But sometimes it's less in the actions and more in the inaction or more around just trusting yourself rather than feeling the need to take control. What's really interesting about this is it's very zen. <laughs> um, it reminds me a lot of Buddhist teachings around all sorts of things in life. And actually, you've kind of reminded me here of a guest we had early, oh gosh, we had him on last year, um, a guy called Patrick, who was talking about surviving loss of a job and how you oh. how you can overcome the difficulties that you feel when you go through that big change of losing your job. And he talked about you know, accepting the change in life and accepting the fact that you'll have the good times and the not so good times. And he was very zen in his approach. Um, It's actually one of my favourite episodes. So we'll link that in the show notes. But yeah, no, that's what you're saying is very related, really accepting that 
change will happen, but trusting yourself to be able to cope with that change and to be able to respond and react effectively to that change is where real resilience comes from. Yeah, and I think that trust is is a hard one sometimes because when we don't feel trusting in ourselves, it's often just because we're not familiar with the opposite. So, for example, if if we don't feel trusting in ourselves to be able to save more money because maybe we label ourselves spontaneous with money, perhaps, or I'm an <laughs> overspender, you know, like I used to tell myself this over and over and over. And of course, the first thing that happens is the brain will just lock into that narrative and it will just give you more and more evidence to support that belief. But sometimes the reason we can't change it is because the opposite of that narrative isn't in our vocabulary because it's not in our experiences and so that's why the first step I think around changing our financial situation is to really become aware of well what is your relationship to money like what are the beliefs and the stories that you heard growing up or or not Mm, (laughs) maybe like money being the taboo subject you know I think is very common in a lot of households where money was never talked about certainly in my household I remember my my mum and dad split up when I was very little and my dad, who was an incredibly successful entrepreneur, never spoke about like how much he earned or how much he made in his business. I could obviously see that he was successful because he lived in a very nice house and had nice cars. But he would come home from work and religiously he would like empty out all his pockets of all of his money. And he he would always put his pound coins in a separate jar to Mm -hmm. his other coins. And the pound coin jar, as we called it, used to go in this like white ceramic flower pot. And he would put it in the back of his wardrobe Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons that, you know, if a burglar broke in, he probably wouldn't want to see it. But yet as a six, seven year old child, the belief that I attached to that experience was money has to be kept secret Mm. and therefore my behaviors were money has to be kept secret so when I was in my late teens like I'm a 1980s um woman so Mm -hmm. I grew up with the catalogs like the look again catalogs and things like that and I just used to massively overspend on these catalog bills which nobody knew about because the letter came through addressed to me and I would hide it Because that was my belief that money has to be kept secret. And then when I got into trouble, when I was like maxing out on my on my catalogs and I'd go and get like a Topshop store card, I'd max that out and then I'd get a Dorothy Perkins one and then max Mm -hmm. that one out. And I that shame around keeping those money issues secret just reaffirmed and reignited that shame and that guilt. So I think that that initial stage of curiosity to well what were the beliefs that you grew up around like what kind of experiences did you have and what meaning are you maybe giving to money that we can then start to think about "Mm, is that serving me or is it sabotaging me in some way yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, early money stories are are so powerful, so powerful. Uh, I still spend time occasionally unpicking some of mine as well. Um, <laughs> in fact, in a recent episode, I was talking about uh, gifts and gift giving, and I actually had a whole moment of epiphany as we were recording the episode <laughs> around, you know, the relationships I had towards my feelings around gifts when from when I was a child. So it, it it's absolutely something that can be a lifelong process of unpicking as you as you go through. Um I think we should take a little break there. 
And when we come back again, we'll we'll dive a bit more into the uh, relationships women in particular have with money. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Catherine Morgan, trauma-informed money coach and financial planner, host of The Money Panel and author of It's Not About the Money. So, Catherine, um, you have this goal of helping a million women with their finances and getting them to be more resilient and wealthier. Why is it so important to have specialist services for women? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, From the research that I've seen specifically with money connected to women is I think that we we have a, a slightly different approach to how we feel around money, which is often comes from the overgiving uh, relationship that we often have with money and with others. And what I mean by that is that if we think about money from a trauma through a trauma informed lens, then for women specifically, we, we actually suffer with a psychological disorder called fawning. So many of you may have heard of like fights and flights, you know, how we respond to different situations is we either we, we fight against it or we feel like we need to flee. And this goes you know, right back to just human um human how we develop as human beings but specifically for women what I see in certainly in our communities and also from the research that I've done is that fawning happens it's a trauma response where we kind of essentially treat money as a way to feel safe by tending and befriending Mm. so what happens is we essentially drop down into people pleasing mode Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know we, we 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 make decisions on money based on what we think other people will feel and think about us and it comes back to this whole perception of just wanting to be liked or wanting to be loved and being judged mm. and therefore what happens is that our brain perceives that in order to feel safe we should be a people pleaser 
And people pleasing often comes up when people, for example, don't charge enough in their businesses or they say yes to too many things and they don't have strong boundaries or they perhaps avoid difficult financial conversations in their relationships at home, perhaps, or they overgive to the detriment of their own needs. And we see a lot of this in our community, mm. you know, a lot of burnt out women running businesses, um, mm. undercharging and overgiving in their time. We see a lot of this where we've got employed women who um, are stuck in jobs that they don't like and they're just kind of putting up with it. They're not really thinking about their own needs, their own desires, their own boundaries. And I think this boundaries conversation is a really important one to have, because if you think about it, if we're people pleasing all the time, then we're not clear on our own desires, but we're also we're actually negating our own boundaries. And I think the more time we can spend thinking about, you know, how will I know when I'm giving in alignment with my values. How will I know when my needs are fulfilled? What boundaries do I need to put in place to ensure that my needs are met? And I think those kind of curiosity questions are really good ones to think about so that we don't therefore overplease and treat money based on what other people are going to say rather than actually stepping into what do we need? What do we desire for ourselves? Um, and I think that's that's something that I definitely see with women. And a big part of that as well is because we, we do have a different life cycle to men. You know, often, although this is changing, but often we are the main caregivers for children, for example, but also for aged parents. Like it's often the women that tend to look after parents as their their own physical needs are perhaps um, needed where they need more support in the home or with some caregiving. And that can force women to have to leave their workplace early. Um, Obviously, having time out of work to have children can leave gaps in their pension uh, Mm -hmm. provisions, etc. So we do have different life cycles that we need to think about specifically for women. But I do also think from a behavioural perspective that we do tend to over please with that sort of fawning um, psychological disorder, which keeps us stuck in the pattern of not having strong boundaries for ourselves. Yeah, and and just to be really clear, and I, I'm not saying that you weren't, but the fawning behaviour is something that's socialised onto us. Mm. It's something, it's a part of how we're raised to be, that the way to respond to circumstances that are uncomfortable or frightening to us is to fawn. That people-pleasing is something about how we're being raised. It's not that we have this disorder because we are disordered, because being a woman is an, in, an innately disordered state. It's that this is how we're taught to respond to these difficult situations. And then because we then also experience um, discrimination and we experience insecurity and, you know, being on lower incomes is is financial insecurity. And you talked already about financial abuse. And so women are much more likely to experience that as well than men and so on. And so I just wanted to be really clear that just because a lot of women are experiencing this disorder, are, are exhibiting this disordered behaviour, it's not because there's something inherently wrong in a kind of, oh, chicks be crazy kind of way. <laughs> yeah. you know, that it is it's something we're taught to do. A hundred percent. like, And it's it's ingrained in us as well through, I mean, you only have to look at consumerism, right? Yeah, to yeah, To look at the impact that 
this almost this messaging is still there mm, that you know totally. we should be the main caregivers and we should question it if we over earn our partners for example you know yeah. it's almost like it, well, that's weird yeah. you know why is it weird <laughs> it's yeah. weird because of consumerism and these judgments upon um, how we should be there's a lot of shoulding a lot of oh, shoulding God. on us <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely yeah and even, even this thing you were talking about about uh, caring for aging parents you know that's an expectation that's put onto women um, within families and extended families a lot of the time as much as what the the women themselves might want to do they potentially some will want to do it and some would rather that load was shared but it's amazing how often a that's just a an expectation that's treated as if it's completely natural. Of course, you're going to be the one that's going to do the caring. Or, you know, if there is um, an equally suitable uh, male relative who could who could do it too, somehow it becomes very inconvenient for them, magically <laughs> impossible for them to, to do this. They can't re- rearrange their lives. Um, and, and so it sort of somehow seems to always fall on, on the woman in, in that position. You've used this term trauma-informed a few times, and I've used it as well, but it has a really specific definition. Can you give us that definition, please, so that we all know what we're talking about? Yeah, of course. So being trauma-informed is really about looking at money through the lens of trauma. And what's interesting about that is that a lot of people perceive that trauma is the big stuff, you know, things like... Uh, war or um, abuse or you know something that's pretty significant like the big traumas maybe uh, like the loss of a loved one for example trauma really is about just a purely just a disruption to the nervous system and there's a really strong link link between trauma and addiction which for those of you who haven't come across this before there's a a terrific um, doctor called Dr Gabor Mate and he defines trauma as something that happens when we do something over and over to temporarily decrease pain and increase pleasure but that there are negative consequences and therefore trauma in reality is something that we've all experienced it's that kind of pattern recognition of old pain that's being resurfaced that keeps us stuck in recurring behavioral patterns and so what trauma informed means is that if we view money through the lens of things that may have happened, whether those are the big traumas or some of the smaller traumas which disrupt our nervous system, make us feel anxious or fearful or shame or guilt, those are all traumas. And we've all experienced trauma like just in the last 18 months with COVID. So the reason I like to talk about trauma and, and as a trauma informed coach is that If we view the lens of money through those small things, those small traumas and bigger traumas, it just helps us to reevaluate that often the way that we're behaving is because we're just trying to feel safe. Um, And that's a really interesting way to reconnect with, well, what are the things that you're really good at with money? And then what are the things that are keeping you stuck in these patterns? Because your brain just wants to remind you that you're safe. Yeah. Yeah, I I often think that, for example, people will overshop or overspend when they, as you said, you f- they feel out of control or when they feel a challenge to their sense of self, they'll buy something that restores that sense of self on some mm. level. So if somebody, 
has a day that makes them feel less competent, they'll buy something that they associate with competent people or that they associate with themselves feeling competent in some in some way. So um, I'm, you know, particularly picking this up from my own <laughs> history. For, but but as a, an example, um, you know, I have always looked at uh, women who look particularly well put together in terms of their appearance and can maintain. I'm somebody who can't maintain a tidy appearance <laughs> for very long. I just don't. Um, I'm very clumsy. <laughs> I don't have great hand-eye coordination. Um, and I just don't have the kind of looks that, that always keep myself looking very neat and clean and, and well put together. But I know that if I'm feeling insecure, I'll often buy clothes. Mm. Or I'll buy makeup or, or something of that nature. And it's about feeling, if I can feel well put together and a new item of clothing always looks sharp, right? It looks clean. It's got the, the dressing on it that they put yeah. in clothes shops that make it drape beautifully or, or look very well pressed. And then I can momentarily inhabit the appearance of a well put together, aka competent person. Mm. And I think there are people who do that, not necessarily, it's not necessarily clothes. For somebody else, it might be, oh, you know, a very competent person will look after their health. So I'll buy a health foods mm. or I'll buy, you know, some, some supplements or something. But people will, I, I think, you know, if you experience a challenge to yourself, that pushes your trauma buttons in some way. It's very easy to then go and do something emotional with your money and both you can be trying to buy into the self that will feel more restored, but you also have this thing that when you shop, the interaction is very controlled, right? Mm. We were talking about that word control before, right? <laughs> There's a It's a ritual, right? It's a set pattern of action where you are a customer. So it's a very defined role to go through and you know what's going to happen in that interaction, so it's a very, I think there's something calming in that for a lot of people to know, I pick up this thing, I pay for it, the assistant is supposed to be nice to me while that's going <laughs> on, so I'm not going to get that pushback from the assistant, we certainly shouldn't do, you know, the customer is always right, so I'm going to be right in this interaction. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I really, I really feel like that's... That that whole process feels very soothing for people when they're emotionally spending. Yeah, and it, it, it gives it, that sense of safety that you're just talking about. Yeah, I, I really resonate with a lot of what you said there. Like our, our habits keep us safe, don't they? Mm. Um, and therefore, to think about doing something different feels scary because it it makes us think, well, if I do that, I won't be safe. For example. <laughs> If you are an over planner and you save, like you're a saver, you know, mm -hmm. you save a lot of money every month, like the thought, the thought of actually spending money may send you into a spiral of anxiety. Like being an over planner has its definite merits, but mm -hmm. then the feeling of, of safety gets removed when we have to spend on ourselves, for example. Whereas for somebody who's perhaps a bit, little bit more spontaneous or impulsive with money, which was me in my 20s, mm -hmm. <laughs> then, you know, there's great merits of being spontaneous. I can take loads of risks. I can make quick decisions. But planning is difficult for me because I don't, mm -hmm. it doesn't feel safe for me to plan because it's not familiar. It's not a habit that I've created. And what you were saying there about the whole competence thing, I find really interesting as well, because 
competence there from what you described was around like um appearance yeah and appearance has always been like (laughs) I really resonate with what you were saying because my appearance has always been something that I've been very um unsafe around like I had teenage I had eating disorders all through my teenage years I was really badly bullied at school and therefore what I chose to wear was extremely important for me it created that sense of safety Mm. because I would like look at everybody else I'd be like wow those jeans look amazing on that person she looks really skinny and really confident and really happy and then I'd go and buy them for myself and be like they look they look terrible like what's wrong with me (laughs) and so I'd buy more clothes thinking well maybe I'll just buy a different pair of jeans or and and it just kept me stuck in a a sense of safety and I definitely hear that a lot from other women is that the, how we perceive ourselves through our image and how we look is often then linked to trauma and linked mm. to this need to feel safe and this need to you know to feel loved ultimately we use money to make us feel loved don't we like and it it might be in food it might be that we buy food because that makes us feel good or it might be in alcohol or Mm -hmm. you know this goes right through to many links between trauma and addiction yeah um so the, the whole kind of theory I think around well how are you using money like if you're using money to move away from pain then it's only going to be short term lived whereas if we move towards using money to help us to create pleasurable things in life Mm. then then it's much more likely to help us stick to those financial goals that we often set ourselves as well yeah yeah so the book that you have written it's not about the money that is a trauma-informed money book is that right yes amazing so I mean you've already said you have your own experiences of trauma how was it to write a a book about trauma-informed money (laughs) yeah it was a really really interesting um to write it because we we share a lot of other people's stories in the book obviously lots Mm. of names change and circumstances change but uh, we share a lot of other people's beliefs around money and traumas just to kind of demonstrate that you know we're not alone in the way that we feel about ourselves and we're not alone in the relationship that we have with money And there's a couple of my own stories that I share in the book, uh, a couple of stories that I'm not yet ready to share in the book as well. Um, But a a couple of stories that um, I I really just hope that will help women to feel like they're not alone and that they can feel empowered to start to shift their inherited beliefs around money and Mm. think about how those experiences that they may have faced have actually kept them stuck in financial situations where they either don't feel deserving to have money number one deserving to hold on to money number two or deserving to actually give and grow money for themselves which is number three so it's what normally one of those three things that we feel most unsafe with and just bringing awareness to which of those things feels most difficult and Mm -hmm. starting with that we give people lots of journaling based questions in the book lots of practical exercises but also lots of emotional exercises so that they can tackle money from both the trauma-informed lens but Mm -hmm. also from a practical perspective too fantastic fantastic and what do you hope is the big takeaway that uh, readers will get from from the book yeah I think the most um the biggest takeaway that we want is for women to pick up this book And to feel empowered 
that they have the ability to move from feeling disempowered to feeling empowered, from not good enough to more than good enough, you know, from unworthy to deserving. And the book is actually split into three distinct sections. So it's deserve, which is step one, create step two, and then grow step three. So it's never a linear journey either. Like we don't (laughs) just do a bit of work on our money mindset and then we're all sorted and then we can hold on to loads of money and then grow it. It's never a linear (laughs) journey. So I've written the book in a way that people can constantly keep going back and forth Mm -hmm. to different sections. Um, But with the ultimate goal that if we can deserve more money and feel better about ourselves, then we can actually hold on to more money and give to ourselves so that we can just have a more conscious balance to how we actually treat money and ultimately how we treat ourselves. That sounds fantastic. I, I'm really excited to get my hands on the copy and, <laughs> and read this. I think this is actually going to be really, really helpful. <laughs> um, where can our listeners get a copy of, of the book? Yeah, so we're actually giving away uh, free copies of the book. Um, you literally just pay for postage. And if you if you head over to the website, which is it's not about the money then you can order your book there, um, and we'll post that out to you within a couple of days. Amazing! I will make sure the link to that is in the show notes. And where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you, Catherine? Yeah, so I'm guessing you're listening to this podcast because you're a podcast lover. So we have a podcast too (laughs) called In Her Financial Shoes. So that's probably the best place to come and connect with me over there. Fantastic. Excellent. Catherine, it's been a joy having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And can I just say, I absolutely love your podcast. Um, It it, it consumes my ears on my daily dog walks. Um, Honestly, you guys are doing such an amazing job. And it's so nice to hear a podcast that's specifically talking about um, the money mindset side and the behaviours that we have with money. So great work. I just I think you're doing amazing things. Oh, thank you, Catherine. Oh, I'm really touched. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Squanderlust, the podcast about the emotional side of money with me, Martha Lawton. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love one of those nice five-star reviews too. Or you can tell a friend about us, maybe somewhere on social media where we're at Pod. You can also find us at squanderlustpod.com where we put show notes, useful links and ways to support the show. Squandlust is sponsored by Wardour Studios in Fitzrovia, London, with production by David Smith, Alicia Cunningham, Charlie Brandon-King and Tom Berry. Our theme music is by Wardour Studios and graphic design by Jason Reed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.